I don't know what uh, is going to be on the screen this morning, but I'm preaching from Galatians 5:13 through 15. I suspect that's what will be there. Is that right? Good. Some of you know that um, for a few years, or for rather for a few months, in 2002, my family and I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And while we were there, we served a little church that met in a suburb of Milwaukee called West Alice. West Alice, Wisconsin. Now, does anyone know, does anyone remember what happened a few years ago, several years ago now, I guess, in West Alice, Wisconsin? Anyone know? Linda? Yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer. Does anyone remember Jeffrey Dahmer? Remember that story? Well, he lived like right down the street from where this church met, where I was serving as a pastor. Jeffrey Dahmer, if you remember, of course, was a cannibal. He was a man who consumed the flesh of other human beings. Can you imagine what it would have been like to realize that you had been living next door to a cannibal? Just a little middle-class, nice, quiet neighborhood. To realize after reading the news that you'd been living next door to a cannibal. Can you imagine the fear, the revulsion, the disgust that would have filled the minds of those people, the neighbors who saw him every day? Well, as shocking as that was, there's something even more shocking going on among us. Some of you, this morning, are sitting right next to a cannibal. In fact, there isn't just one cannibal among us this morning. There are probably dozens, scores, maybe. And maybe you are the cannibal, and you don't even know it. Now, how can I say such a thing? I can say such a thing because that's what Paul says in Galatians 5:13 through 15. If you open your Bibles or follow along with me on the screen, Paul tells us that our, I can't say pews, our chairs, our living rooms, our cars, our dining rooms, our classrooms are filled with cannibals who are constantly biting and devouring and consuming one another. Listen to Galatians 5:13 through 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul gives us a statement of fact in the first part of verse 13. We've looked at this recently. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now the question is, what do we do with that freedom? There are two wrong answers to that question that people always take this to. Two wrong answers to the question, what do we do with this freedom that we have in Christ? The first wrong answer is the answer of the legalist. The legalist hears about the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and he says, no, no, no. That will never do. That will lead to license. The only way to please God, the only way to be self-controlled, the only way to be righteous is to come back under the slavery of the law. And Paul deals with that wrong response to our freedom in Christ earlier in chapter 5. We're not going to talk about that. Remember verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, since... 
Christ has set you free from the condemnation of the law. Don't come back under the law as if the law itself will make you right with God or empower you to obey God. Christ has set you free for freedom. So do not submit yourself to a legalistic view of God's law. We've seen that over and over again in the book of Galatians. But there's another wrong response to our freedom in Christ. It's just as damning and just as enslaving. The second wrong response to our freedom in Christ is the answer of the libertine. The libertine hears about the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. And he says, yes, now I can do whatever I want. I don't need to worry about obeying God's commands anymore. Now I can be free and do whatever I want. I have liberty. Now that's exactly how many people in Christian churches respond to the message of their freedom in Christ. They think, hey, if I'm already a Christian, and if I'm already forgiven, then I can relax. I can do whatever I want to do. And when I sin, it's no big deal because I'll just claim 1 John 1.9 and go on my way. You know, if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So it doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm free. I know a pastor whose father used that verse, 1 John 1.9, for years to rationalize his ongoing molestation of his granddaughter. This man claimed to be a Christian. Had a Christian home. Two of his sons are pastors. And when he was finally found out, his response was, oh, oh, but I just claimed 1 John 1, 9. You know, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. I know that molesting my granddaughter is wrong, but you know, hey, I'm human. What do you expect? And God forgives me. I'm a Christian. It's no big deal. As far as I know, this man who had been in church all of his life and who was a pillar in his community, this man died totally unrepentant for his wickedness. And he used his so-called freedom in Christ as a license to sin. And that is a very common response to our freedom in Christ, but it's a wicked response. So Paul states the fact of our freedom in verse 13, you are called to freedom, brothers. Now what must you do with that freedom? Well, he answers the question in two ways. He gives a negative answer. This is what you must not do with your freedom. And he gives a positive answer. This is what you must do with that freedom. Negatively, you must not use your freedom as a license to sin. Look again at the first part of verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The point is, do not take the path of the libertine. Do not think that because you are free in Christ, you're also free to sin. Don't think that because you're free from the condemnation of the law, you are now free to totally disregard God's righteous demands. All of us do that in one way or the other, don't we? Every last one of us. Just think about it. Think about yourself. How often are you, are you tempted to sin? Think about the last time you were actually tempted to sin. Right? Two minutes ago. Or whatever it was. And, and you're contemplating a particular sin. And you're kind of holding it out here at arm's length. Kind of thinking about it. And, and the rationale in your mind is, you know, if I go ahead and do this, I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But if I go ahead and do this, I can always ask for forgiveness later, right? So why not? Have, have any of you ever thought and acted that way? 
Let me ask it the other way. How, how many of you have never thought and acted that way? Any hands? I know I have. And it's so easy to reason that way, and there certainly is some truth to it, isn't there? I mean, if I sin, of course I can repent. Of course I can repent and seek forgiveness. Of course I can repent and seek restoration and grace from Jesus Christ, because those are the wonderful privileges that He purchased for me on the cross. But how we twist and distort and misuse God's good and precious and gracious promises in the Gospel when we use His promises as a license to sin. How perverted is that? To reason like this. <coughs> because God has chosen me from before the foundation of the world, a wicked, rebellious sinner who hated Him and who disregarded Him and who wanted to pull Him down from the throne. And because God has sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and die the death that I deserved. And because God has sent His Holy Spirit to me to give me a new heart and to open my eyes and to give me the ability to trust in Jesus Christ and to follow in His ways. And because God has forgiven my sins and declared me righteous before His eyes. And because God hasn't just forgiven me at a, from a distance, but He has embraced me and He's made me His Son and He has promised to be my loving Father forever. To take all of those wonderful truths and reason that because all of that is true, therefore I can sin all I want. It doesn't matter. Who cares about God's law? That is some of the most twisted and perverse and insane reasoning that any of us could ever be capable of. Because God is good and kind and gracious, therefore I can freely thumb my nose in His face and do whatever I want. It's crazy to think like that. And be like a wife who thinks, you know, my husband is kind and he's gracious and he's loving and he's strong and he's loyal and he's devoted and he provides for me and he leads me and he protects me. Therefore, I think I'll cheat on him. Just doesn't make any sense at all. But every Christian in this room has reasoned like that before. Me included. Every one of us has. I know that God says not to take that second look at the woman walking down campus. But you know, what the heck? I know He'll forgive me. I know God tells me not to be harsh and unkind and selfish with my wife and my kids, but you know, they'll, they'll understand. I'll just ask forgiveness once I cool down. No big deal. Paul says, no, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not use the freedom that Jesus Christ won for you at the price of His own blood as a license to dishonor and disobey the One who gave you the freedom in the first place. Now, just what exactly does he mean here when he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? Let me tell you what I believe the flesh is in a nutshell. The flesh is that part of every one of us that desperately wants to relate everything back to self. In other words, the flesh is our hardwired self-centeredness. It's in our bones. It goes down to the marrow. This is who we are. The flesh is that hardwired self-centeredness. Our desire for self-service and self-indulgence and self-sufficiency. Now, it's very important to see that to give an opportunity to the flesh or to indulge the flesh can look very different in different people and in different times. In you, it can look one way 
at one time and another way at another time. We usually think of the flesh in terms of bodily passions like sexual immorality or or overeating or drunkenness, some kind of bodily indulgence. And those certainly are expressions of our flesh. But the reason they are expressions of our flesh is because that they are activities that center on me and what I want. But there are all sorts of other more subtle ways that we indulge our flesh. Whenever you walk into a room looking to have your own desires, your own dreams, your own demands fulfilled, then you're indulging the flesh. (coughs) Whenever you enter into a relationship, and the only real question in your mind when you enter into this relationship is, what can this person do for me? Then you are giving an opportunity to your flesh. And so the flesh can take a very nasty and and obvious appearance like greed and sexual lust and anger and gluttony. Or the flesh can take a very respectable and subtle appearance like perfectionism and and even hard work and even religious duties and even being socially acceptable. All of those things can be indulging the flesh too. both license and legalism indulge the flesh. Why is that? Both license and legalism indulge the flesh because they both center on me. What do people think of me? What will this do for me? What will this tell about me? What will this earn for me? If you are irreligious, your flesh might use whiskey to focus on yourself. You know, I just need a buzz to get the edge off, you know. And if you're religious, your flesh might use the law to focus on yourself. Look how good I am. Look how well I've done. I obey. Either way, you're still focusing on yourself. And so none of us are off the hook here. We all do this. Men, women, children, young and old. Thank you very much. He doesn't. See, he... (laughs) We all do this. Mature Christians, new Christians, non-Christians... All of us know what it's like to approach any and every situation or relationship with the mindset of what will this do for me? And Paul says to every one of us, you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh. Now, that's the negative command. What's the positive command? The positive command is to serve one another through love. Verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, we read those words about serving one another through love. We have to ask a very important question. What is it about love that enables you to serve others instead of serving yourself? These things are put in opposition against one another. This contrast. You're not serving your flesh, indulging your flesh. That's self-centered. Instead, serving others through love. What is it about love that makes us able to serve others instead of serving ourselves? Why does love empower you and free us and free you to serve one another? Well, the answer is, is in the difference between the person who's controlled by the flesh and the person who's controlled by love. What is the difference? Your flesh is empty and ravenous, always trying to fill itself. It's empty. It's hollow. It's always trying to fill itself. But love is already full and overflowing, always reaching out of its fullness. 
So your flesh is consumed with meeting its own needs, but love is consumed with meeting the needs of others. Love enables you to overflow in service to others because love is the overflow of the fullness and the satisfaction that you have in Jesus Christ. Love is the opposite of the emptiness of the flesh. Your flesh is like a bone-dry sponge. It is empty and it is desperately looking for something to fill itself with. Your flesh is like a vacuum cleaner sucking up everything around it. But love is like, like a spring that constantly, constantly gushes out. Gushes out of its fullness to give water and life and joy and refreshment to everything around it. But where does this love come from? <clears throat> where does love come from? Do you remember Galatians 5, 6? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only what? Can we say it together? We should know it by now. Only what? Faith working through love. So where does love come from? Love comes from faith. And faith connects us with the soul-satisfying fullness of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And true faith enables us to love. Because by faith, the Holy Spirit frees us from the emptiness and the self-centeredness of our flesh. And He allows us to be filled with the fullness of God. And that fullness overflows in glad-hearted service to the people around us. That's how it works. Faith connects with the Holy Spirit which fills us with joy and that overflows into love. And so Paul gives us two commands in Galatians 5.13. He gives us a negative command, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And he gives us a positive command, rather, through love serve one another. Now in verses 14 and 15, he gives us two reasons for those two commands. First, a positive reason. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another because... Love fulfills God's law. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's giving a reason why we should serve one another through love. It's because you are obeying all, the, all of the commands of God when you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there are a few questions that we need to ask with that statement because there's all kinds of misunderstanding. First of all, how can Paul say that when I love my neighbor... I have fulfilled the whole law. Think about it. What about the Godward? What about the Godward aspects of God's law? Are you saying that when I love you, I have in loving you loved God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? How does that work? How can Paul say that if I fulfill that I fulfill the whole law, even the Godward aspects of the law when I'm loving my neighbor? Well, the answer is that I cannot love my neighbor until I am first loving God. Love for God is the foundation of love for my neighbor. The first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, always comes before the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why John can say these words in 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, your, your love for God is revealed by your love for your neighbor. And your love for your neighbor flows out of your love for God. So John says, look, don't tell me you love God. Don't tell me you love God. Forget all the words. If you refuse to love your neighbor, forget about telling me you love God. You're lying. Because you show me that you don't really love God by, all, by the fact that you don't love your neighbor. And on the other hand, you show that you do love God by the fact that you do love your neighbor. So when Paul says in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he's exactly right. Because the command to love your neighbor as yourself assumes and is built upon the command to love God. If you obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself, it's only because you have first obeyed the command to love God. Now there's a second question that verse 14 raises. Why is, why is he talking about the law? I thought this was about the law being done. He has said over and over again that Christians are free from the law. Why is he bringing up the law here? The answer is really obvious, that Christians are indeed freed from the condemnation of God's law. But this freedom from the condemnation of God's law does not mean that we can disregard the holy nature of God and do whatever we want. It's really just the opposite. We are freed from the condemnation of the law precisely so that we can be freed and enabled to fulfill God's law by the power of the Holy Spirit. The third question that verse 15 raises for us, this is probably the most, uh, the one that's so obvious to us in our culture because of, of the misunderstanding. What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? We live in a culture where we hear a lot about the need to love ourselves. We even hear about this in the church, don't we? Many people, even Christian writers and pastors and counselors, tell us that one of our most important needs is the need to love ourselves. And they even go so far as to say this, I cannot love my neighbor until I have first loved myself. Have any of you heard this before? Yeah? And many use passages like Galatians 5.14 to prove that idea, or to try to prove it. They say, what we have here is two commands, the command to love yourself and then the command to love your neighbor. And we can't love our neighbor until we've loved ourselves. But that is absolutely not what this verse means. Completely get that out of your mind if it's stuck there. It's not what this verse means. God never commands us to love ourselves. Where in the world do we get the idea that God ever commands us to love ourselves? Show it to me. In fact, he says that loving yourself is a bad thing. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, you, you know these words. Understand this, Paul says to Timothy, understand this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be, what? Lovers of self. It's a bad sign when, when the world starts talking about loving yourself. It's even worse when the, world, when the church starts talking about it. And as we've already seen, the foundation for my ability to love you is never my love for myself. It is always my love for God. This does not teach us that you have to love yourself before you can love others. It's just so backwards. Instead, this passage is saying something like this. He's saying, love your neighbor in the same way that you already naturally love yourself. 
Or you could put it this way, care for your neighbor in the same way that you already care for yourself. Or as Jesus says in what we call the golden rule, treat others the way you want them to treat you. That's what he's saying. Now that is a radical command. And it strikes at the heart of our flesh. And it strikes at the heart of our self-centeredness. Think of what it means. It means, it means want to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you get hungry. It means want to find your neighbor a job as much as you are glad that you have a job. It means want to help your fellow student get A's as much as you want to get A's. Want to help the person stalled on the freeway as much as you are glad you're not stalled on the freeway. Want to be friendly to someone as much as you want people to be friendly to you. Want to welcome strangers into your church or into your home just as much as you want strangers to welcome you. In other words, make your natural tendency to serve yourself the measure of how you serve others. If you are energetic in pursuing your own happiness, be energetic in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. If you're creative in pursuing your own happiness, be creative in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. If you're persevering and long-suffering and patient in pursuing your own happiness, be persevering and long-suffering and patient in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. How do you pursue your own well-being? Pursue your neighbor's well-being that way too. Care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to yourself. That's what he's saying. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what this church would be like if all of us were like that? Can you even begin to imagine? Imagine what your home would be like looking at the person to the right and to the left of you and feeling the same longing for their happiness that you feel for your own? Can you imagine what would happen if we did that? This would definitely be a place where the law was being fulfilled, wouldn't it? Your home would be a place of righteousness. And this would be a place glowing with joy and glowing with the glory of God. And people would be converted and transformed by the grace of God among us. And people would come in here and say, there is something going on. Because this ain't natural. So the first reason, the positive reason to not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but, but through love serve one another, is that love fulfills God's law. The second reason, the negative reason, is in verse 15. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, because otherwise you will consume one another. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. There it is. There it is. Cannibalism. Cannibalism in Galatia. Cannibalism in Bloomington. If you refuse to hear the commands of verse 13, if you insist on indulging your flesh, if you insist on living as a hollow, empty, self-centered, self-focused person, if you refuse to serve others through the satisfying, overflowing fullness of love, then you are doomed to the existence of a cannibal. You will always be scraping and clawing and biting and devouring the people around you. Why? It's because you will still be empty. Think about it. What kinds of animals bite and devour other animals? 
What kinds of animals do you not want to be, you know, caught between? What kind of animals go after things? Hungry animals bite and devour other animals. So what kind of people bite and devour other people? Empty people do. People who are never satisfied do. Hollow people do. Angry, critical, judgmental people are angry and critical and judgmental because they're trying to fill up the bottomless pit of their own emptiness. They're hungry and critical and judgmental because they're never satisfied and nothing you do will ever satisfy them. Nothing they do will ever satisfy you. Don't doom yourself to a life of spiritual cannibalism. Don't walk away from here today as a person who's still empty and hollow inside. Don't leave here and continue to live like a a wild animal, always and only focused on yourself and on your own desires and on your own wants and on your own needs. It's just like a beast. I've seen this. I've seen this firsthand and it's revolting. I can't tell you the number of times I've sat in my office counseling married couples who have promised to love one another and lay down their lives for one another. For better or for worse. worse, For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. And these couples' lives are wrecked by the carnage and the, the brutality of spiritual and emotional cannibalism. If we had the right eyes to see them, they'd be looking, they'd look like people who are ripped to shreds. All they do is bite and claw and rip and tear and chew and devour one another and they are fierce with one another. I'm not, I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, loud fights or flying, frying pans uh, flying through the air or lamps crashing. That's not just what I'm talking about. Sometimes it looks like that. I'm talking about the little jabs. You know, the little, the little dagger between the ribs. The little, the silences, the coldness. The rolling eyes, the bitter words, the you always and the you nevers, the accusations and the blame shifting and the withdrawing and the hiding and the attacking. and It's everywhere. But there is a different way. There's the way of love. Love that by faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit is filled and satisfied with all the fullness of God and is able then to overflow in blessing and service to others. Why would you want anything else? If I'm painting your picture, the biting, the clawing, the devouring, are you happy with that? You you want to be this way? Why would you want anything else than this love that is yours? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. God Almighty, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is offering to you right now a new life of freedom. And whether this is all new to you, or whether you have heard this a thousand times, He is calling every one of you to turn away from yourself. Don't think now, don't, now listen, don't check out and think now I'm talking to the pagans. I'm not, I'm talking to you. Okay? He is calling every, way, every one of you, every one of us, to turn away from yourself and to come to Jesus Christ. Don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years. 
come to Jesus Christ and find the freedom and the desire and the ability to live a life of satisfaction, a life of fullness that overflows into service, a life of obedience that is beautiful and free and glad-hearted. All of you, come to Jesus Christ and find all of this because He will do this in you. You were called to freedom. This is what your freedom is for. Use your freedom to serve one another through love. He will do this in you. He will work in you. This is what it's all about. And He will forgive your sins and fill you with His Holy Spirit and clothe you with His righteousness and transform you into a person who can love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what this table's about. It's about what Jesus Christ has done in order to make us people who can love God and love our neighbors, who can live in the freedom of the Gospel. Let's pray together as we prepare.